0: Sometimes God alters our plans. Whether it's as simple as Him changing the course of our day, or as surprising and frustrating as Him changing the course of our career. Whether it's as simple as staying home with a sick kid, or as devastating as having the doctor walk in and tell you the news. Whether it's as simple as finding your kids ate the last sugar cookie. Or stepping on the scale and realizing you should not have eaten as many sugar cookies as you did. Sometimes God alters our plans, and we can't get away from it. And in the midst of that, we find in these moments God rarely gives us a heads up that he's going to change our plans. And so it's in these moments then that when the plans get altered, we find ourselves not only surprised, but very frequently frustrated. Lord, why did you do this? Lord, why did you allow this to happen? Lord, how could this possibly be for our good? See, sometimes God alters our plans. And what's true for us is also true in the Christmas story of Mary. I would argue that no one knew what it was like more than Mary to to have God alter your plans and to wrestle with what he was doing and why. And yet Mary serves as a model of what it looks like to follow God even when he's changing everything and to follow him in faith instead of fighting him in frustration. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in the seat rack in front of you or grab whatever smart device you use and pull it up in your favorite Bible app or the Northeast app, Luke chapter one. We were in Luke one last week looking at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And now we find ourselves headed into the story of Mary. So two-thirds of the way through your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you hit John, Acts, or Romans, you've gone too far. Luke here will tell us now the story of Mary. And he records this in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed. And the angel departed from her. So Luke says it was the sixth month that this angel was sent by God to this virgin betrothed. Six months in reference to Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were also expecting now in their sixth month. It says earlier in verse 24 that after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden As we saw in the story last week, an angel appeared to Zachariah in their old age, telling them that they would also bear a son, a son they'd prayed for their whole lives and never found, never had, never conceived until suddenly now. And Elizabeth, hiding, waiting, seeing this come to bear after five months, then Luke picks up the story one month later in the sixth month, The same angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to a virgin betrothed. Now, betrothal is like an ancient form of engagement, if you will. In Jewish culture, though, it was as good as being married. Legally, you were already committed. Legally, the families had committed to one another, though physically you had not yet come together. So it was as good as set, making this a really big deal. During this time, the family would be planning a massive celebration. They would be saving up. They would be stockpiling goods for a party that, that surely most of the town would be invited to. Joseph himself would be planning and preparing, building onto the back of his parents' house or finding a place of his own. He would be building up his career either with his father or with someone else, seeking a place and a space to bring his wife into securely. All of these things are in motion, all of their lives revolving around this plan to wed and begin a life together and the dreams of what that will look like until God altered everything with an angel. Sometimes God alters our plans. Verse 28 says that the angel comes in and greets her with these words, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Luke says that not only was Mary troubled by this, she was greatly troubled. Greatly troubled. Why would you be greatly troubled by this greeting? Because there's something unusual about this greeting. This wasn't a, hey, how are you in the church lobby, to which we boldface lie before we worship, right? Oh, great. It's not that kind of greeting. There's something more significant at work The angel comes in with a greeting that was often reserved for royalty, for people of significance, for people of consequence. Greetings, oh favored one. There is weight to this. In this culture, this is how you would greet someone of significance, of of royalty even. Not a teenage girl from a nothing town like Nazareth. This greeting has no place in a place like this to a girl like her. And that's why she's troubled by this greeting. What is happening? See, the picture here, Mary's a nobody. Mary's really an underaged, unmarried woman in a male-dominated culture from a know-nothing town that is being given a royal greeting by an angel. This isn't, how she expected God to work, let alone anyone to work. And I'm sure it led to all kinds of questions. She's probably thinking, you've got the wrong house in the wrong city because I'm the wrong girl. In fact, I'm probably the wrong gender. Because in this culture, to greet someone of nobility and to proclaim such things, it would be done to a man. And yet God alters the plan. And sensing the confusion, then the angel quickly speaks into the moment. In verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Any good Jew would understand the implications of this announcement. Not a normal announcement of of an ordinary child. It says this son will take the throne of his father, David. And not only that, he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. There's only one possible conclusion to draw From this mystery, the angel is announcing the Messiah. But think of this, because Mary is a virgin betrothed. And here this angel is announcing a Messiah. Not only is she a virgin betrothed, she's not even in a capital city, a kingly city, a place like Jerusalem where they likely expected the Messiah would come. And she's not a queen herself. So how could this be? She asked the question, then verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? I mean, far be it from me, angel, to correct you or seek to educate you, but your boss created a process by which children come, and I've not yet undertaken that process. Check with him. She's confused because none of this makes sense. She's not the one that she would ever expect to receive such an announcement, especially considering her unmarried condition. Consider the position that God is putting Mary in for a moment in this story. Consider the way he's altering everything in her life. He hasn't just mildly altered her plans. He hasn't just come in and and adjusted the wedding date. Or the guest list, although this is definitely a plus one. (laughs) Imagine having to go home and, and tell your parents that you're pregnant. There's no greater fear for a teenage girl than this, and to not even have a good explanation. Mom, dad, I'm pregnant. How do you know? An angel told me. For the teachers in the room, this is a tougher sell than the dog ate my homework. Like between those things, yeah, the dog, totally. But an angel, a virgin, Mary. The predicament that God is putting her in is extreme. And without a good explanation, She's forced along in this new course as God alters her plans. And I imagine that Mary, in part in this moment, was tempted. Tempted perhaps to keep a lid on this, tempted perhaps not to say anything to mom and dad, tempted just in case maybe this was a dream and she'll all wake up in a moment, or tempted that maybe she can convince Joseph to move up the wedding and all of this can be hidden. Because the reality is for a virgin betrothed to be found with child is a violation of Old Testament law. And not only is her character at risk, her very life is. This is how much God has altered her plans. And as tempting as it was to sidestep this or second guess it, consider where the story goes. See, sometimes God alters our plans, doesn't he? And sometimes his plans make absolutely no sense when they first come along. Why me? Why unmarried? Why why would it not be possible to wait until after the wedding? So many questions, I'm sure, filled her mind. And and, and so too for us. It's hard to know how job loss can be a part of God's plan. And certainly, God, I would be able to give more to you and your kingdom if I had an income. And it's in these moments then that we barter with God and we explain to him how his plan would be better if it went our direction. It's hard to know how losing a relationship or a loved one or even a marriage could possibly be a part of God's plan. How can any good come from this? And it's in these moments that it's hard then to trust that God even has a plan. But consider the angel's words here to Mary. This divine disruption is God's means of redemption. That's the message. You will bear the Messiah. This divine disruption, a disruption to you, is actually redemption for the world. See, it puts into perspective a bit how God operates. Here's what we're beginning to see from the story, what's true in Mary's life and also true in ours, that God never alters our plans without a purpose. God never alters our plans without a purpose. It's one of these things that we can acknowledge in hindsight, but in the moment we wrestle. It feels like God is just jacking with us And he's not giving explanation and we're left wondering if it has any any bearing at all in our lives, if it will come to any good. It makes no sense. And yet, God never alters our plans without a purpose. And what he tells Mary is that this has a divine purpose behind it. Just think of the story of Scripture for a moment. Consider these examples. God interrupted Noah's life with plans to build an ark. I'm sure that wasn't on his radar. And yet it was for a purpose. God met Moses in a burning bush to send him back to Egypt with a purpose to redeem his children from slavery. He led Joshua to march around Jericho. He led Esther to find favor with the king. He sent Jonah reluctantly to Nineveh, all with the greater good in mind. And what God did with these for a greater glory, he chooses at times to do also with us. And scripture shows us that if he does alter our plans, then we can rest assured that God always has a purpose and he never alters our plans without a purpose. But it's in these moments of transition that we wonder if God can be trusted because we can't see what he's doing. We can't see where it will go and how it will all come together. And this was, I'm sure, the case for Mary, but I love how God assures her in the story. Mary asked the question, verse 34, how can this be? And God assures her, The angel answered her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has already conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. So in this moment, with all of these questions, God confirms his power and his sovereign ability to marry. But notice, he doesn't reveal all the ins and outs of how this is going to play out for Mary. He he doesn't give her a biology lesson or a a miracle lesson on how the Holy Spirit can lead to the Messiah in your womb, right? He, He doesn't pull out a timeline with a little red dot, like you are here and for the next nine months you'll be here, and then this is where the Messiah comes in, and this is how his ministry will go. There's none of that. God doesn't give any inkling at how the story will play out. All she's told is the Holy Spirit will do this, period. She's not even given a say. But then I love that he brings Elizabeth in. And after telling her the Holy Spirit will do this, The Lord says, and behold, Elizabeth, who once was considered barren, is now in her sixth month. Now why go bringing that into the mix? Because Mary needed to know that God is able. And what we see in Mary's story is true also of ours. That God often points to what he's done in the past to prove to what he's able, prove what he's able to do in the future. That God's MO is rarely telling us the future and painting the picture for us. Instead, God's MO is to point to the past of all the times that he has been faithful to us as a way of assuring us that he will be faithful to us again in the future, as a way of telling us that he can be trusted with what is ahead. Consider again the story of Scripture Scripture regularly points us back. All through the scriptures, God sets up memorials for his people. All through the Old Testament, sets up memorials, sets up reminders, celebrations, festivals, holidays as a part of reminding his people of acts that he has done in the past to deliver them, to redeem them, to provide for them. And that is designed as a way to encourage them forward in the future. So over and over and over throughout the calendar year, God was begging his people, stop and celebrate my activity in the past and rest assured that it will continue for you in the future. This is how God operates. And this is why this moment of communion for us as a church matters so much. See, in a few moments, we ourselves will pause and stop and we will celebrate. We will celebrate that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we will stop and we will take the bread and we will take the cup as a way of reminding ourselves that God could be trusted with our sin. God could be trusted to redeem us when we are at our worst. And if he could be trusted with that, then he can be trusted with anything in the future. God often points backwards to reassure us about what is ahead of us. Tim Keller reflected on it this way, that the God who brought us into faith will keep us going in our faith. And the God who opened heaven to us will ensure that we arrive there. And it's moments like these when we look back that we are reminded that he can be trusted to get us where he wants us. But all of this leads us to a closing question. A closing question, an application question, if you will, on the story of Mary. And the question is simply this. When God alters our plans, will we respond in faith or will we resist in frustration? Will we respond in faith or resist in frustration? And I word it that way for a reason. Because more often than not, when God alters my plans, I don't look like Mary in that moment, and I don't respond in faith. Instead, I resist in deep frustration. God, what are you doing? I had a plan. God, I had a timeline. God, this doesn't seem good. I don't know how to navigate this. Lord, why this? Why me? Why now? Is it not true that more often than not, when God adjusts our plans or steers us a different direction, we don't fall down on our knees and respond like Mary? Consider her response in this, for as much as God has just radically altered and shifted, now in this moment, she has to walk forward and explain all of this to not only her parents, but to Joseph. She bears that weight. And the angel, by the way, didn't give her a script. Like, here's what you say to Joseph. She just had to trust God with how it would play out. And her response to this massive request of her faith, verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The power of this is in the contrast between Zechariah, earlier in Luke 1, and Mary now. Zechariah, who we looked at last week, who is an aged priest, who you would argue should be the closest to God, the most trusting of God, for all of his years walking with God and serving in the temple of God. And yet when the angel visits him and tells him that in his age, they will bear a child who will be John the Baptist, he what? He doubts. And now, teenage girl in the midst of receiving similar news in contrast to the doubt of Zachariah, trusts. It's a startling contrast, is it not? The pastor in the story is a flop. And Mary in the moment says, behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me, because I'm sure in that moment it felt very much like, God, you're doing this to me let it be to me according to your word this is not how i respond so often when god alters my plans when he messes with my schedule and don't get me started on my budget i don't respond in faith i resist in frustration and so last week when i realized that there's a leak in the tire and i take it in and they find a screw in the sidewall can't be repaired got to replace the tire 250 <laughs> Merry Christmas. And in that moment, I didn't respond in faith by falling on my knees in the middle of NTB and screaming out to God, I am your servant, let it be to me according to your word. Instead, I sat at a little round table off to the side with my calculator, looking at our Wells Fargo accounts and stewing over the fact that in the most expensive time of the year, this is what God would introduce. And yet, when cooler heads prevail, I remember that God has always provided for the needs of my family, that not once have I ever been forsaken. See, in those dark and lonely moments, it's hard to remember that when God alters our plans, it's always for a purpose, always for our good, and always for His glory. And I forget that in moments when I watch my wife miscarry on our 10th anniversary, when I find myself alone in a room with doctors testing my heart, trying to figure out what's wrong. In those lonely moments, I resist in frustration. And oh, that we would respond like a young girl and say, behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't know what God is doing in your life right now. And I don't know how this Christmas story finds you. Maybe you find yourself feeling a strange partnership, kinship with Mary, having things suddenly altered that you can't explain, things that people want you to give an account for even, and you don't know how, and you don't know why God has you on this journey. You don't know why God is doing this in your relationships or in your career or with your child, and you've begged and pleaded for him to stop, but he doesn't seem to be changing course right now, and you're waiting and you're wondering, God, how will you work this out for Michael? And it's in these moments then that Jesus calls us back to the table. And Jesus, through the bread and the cup, seeks to remind us that our God is a God who can be trusted. That in the midst of our deepest and darkest nights, when there was sin and guilt and shame that we could not cleanse from ourselves and our own souls, God so loved the world that he gave his Son so that he might do what we could not do for ourselves. That in the midst of the stuckness of sin, God might free us and redeem us by the blood of Jesus Christ at his cost because of his work instead of demanding more work from us. And God calls us back then to this table to remind us that he can be trusted because he works all things even the crucifixion for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if God can use the death of his son for good, then there is nothing he cannot redeem. And so in a moment, the ushers are going to come forward and they are going to hand the elements out. And we'll be reminded of this scene when Jesus gathered with his disciples on that final night. And when he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. And when he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. As a way of letting the disciples know that all they were about to experience, all the chaos that was about to ensue had a purpose. God's redemption was underway. And would you in this moment then, as you receive the elements would you just sit with them for a moment? And whatever it is that you're wrestling with in your life, would you in this moment just prayerfully surrender that back to God with this reminder that God can be trusted and he will and can work all things for your good? If you've not, however, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the scriptures would remind us that this is not a moment to take lightly. This is a moment for those who've placed their faith in Jesus because we celebrate his sacrifice for us, but it makes no sense to celebrate something that you don't believe. So the scriptures would ask that you not participate in this if you've not placed your faith in Jesus. But the scriptures would also say, as would I in this moment, would you today place your faith in Jesus? No one can be trusted more and no one loves you more than he who gave the life of his son, the father, giving the life of his son, Jesus Christ, for you. And the scriptures say that when we place our faith in him and confess with our mouth our sin, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. If you want to talk to someone about a decision you've made or let us know how God is moving through this series, visit nbcch contact. Be sure to stay connected with us throughout the week on social media, download our app, or subscribe to our weekly podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's message, and we hope that you join us as we continue to make disciples on mission for Jesus Christ.